from the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe, from way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron, for three for the win, yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes! It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and with me this week, I've got a very special guest. He's a regular on the program. He's also a big time Cleveland Cavaliers fan, friend, of course, wonderful human, Justin Matcham. And you can follow him on Twitter at Justin Matcham. That's M A T C H A M. Justin, how you doing? I'm doing great, Garrett. Um, obviously, it's been it's been a little bit of a time since I have been on a podcast. So Looking forward to doing this. I'm a little bit rusty, so forgive me if I misspeak at all. But um, no, things have been great. Um, obviously, just moved a little over a month ago now, so glad to be kind of settled in. I'm in Chicago now. Um, started a new job. I'm working with uh, Next Pro Hoops, a company that does a lot of work in grassroots scouting and event running. We run the Pro 16 circuit. Um, so high-level grassroots basketball there. We're kind of competing with the Under Armors and the Adidas of the world in that space. So it's been really, really good, been busy, but um more than happy to make some time to get on here. Absolutely. And uh, also recent uh, graduate from Bowling Green State University. Congratulations on that. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Um, not not going to miss the school part. Um, <laughs> definitely enjoyed my time at BG, but, but glad to be back. Glad to be past classes. It's a good feeling. Yeah. Yep, uh, I uh, I don't intend to to take too many classes in the future either. So I, <laughs> I know what you mean there. Um, so for for this episode, we uh, we're going to talk about a couple of subjects. We're going to start with a uh, sort of a Cleveland Cavalier retrospective or a post mortem, <laughs> given how uh, rough that series went against the Knicks. Yeah, yeah, we're going to uh, we're going to finish out the episode with a preview of the. Uh, the first round series between the six-seeded Golden State Warriors and the seven-seeded Los Angeles Lakers. But uh, Justin, you know, to start with the Cavs here, they, of course, lost in five games to the New York Knicks as the, uh, the, the team with home court advantage. So lost two of their three games at home, lost both on the road. And uh, really, we're just completely dominated on the offensive glass, and especially by Mitchell Robinson. But uh, yeah, what were some of your uh, key takeaways there from that that disappointment from the Cavs? Uh, so you know, really coming into the series, um, I did have concerns, um, even about just the round one matchup. Obviously, I think it was a little bit worse than any of us expected, me included. But I was there were very very real concerns for me right off the bat as to just who the fifth guy would be in the lineup. Um, I thought that you know obviously the lack of spacing, which ended up being amplified by the total inability to score even inside by Jared Allen and Evan Mobley. But I just thought the lack of spacing between those two and whoever else they were going to be putting on the floor 
um, would just make life difficult in the playoff setting on both Darius and Donovan Mitchell. Um, and that ended up proving to be true. I'm not going to say that either of them had bad series between Garland and Mitchell, um, but outside of game one for Mitchell and I guess, you know, game two for Garland where he kind of broke out a little bit. Um, it was just really, really, really tough for either of them to get going. Um, it turned into a lot of really, really tough shots that were maybe a little bit forced by Mitchell, um, even if he didn't really have much of another option. Um, and it just kind of led to times where Darius Garland was just kind of invisible. Um, just hard for those two to work to create any space when the Knicks were essentially able to sag off of three guys. And even if you were able to get Jared Allen in a spot where he had a little bit of space to score, just seemed like he was so afraid of any contact inside um, to where he was just flipping up the little floaters that really in this series weren't even close to going in. Um, I couldn't tell you how many foul shots he took, but just totally shied away from any opportunity to get to the line. And really the same with Mobley. I thought he did a little bit of a better job of, you know, hitting some of those little short jumpers that he's accustomed to hitting but even that really wasn't going for him either. And again, just the total lack of foul shots in that series, as far as just an absolute unwillingness to challenge really even Julius Randall, but especially Mitchell Robinson inside who established himself as really probably the best big in the series. Um, just a lot of issues. Um, you mentioned the defense and the offensive rebounding. I thought that the Cavs first possession defense was solid. It was just a matter of, you know, you get the stop. And maybe you're you have a little bit of momentum. Maybe you just scored on the other end, um, but then Mitchell Robinson just gets the offensive rebound, and it either leads to an Obi top in corner three, or you know a Mitchell Robinson put back, whatever it may be. So a lot of things that just really, really got exposed as far as issues for this Cleveland team, and that's really only the start. I mean, we're going to talk about a lot more, but I'm interested to hear if there was more that you saw. Yeah, the um the the interesting thing about sort of what the the Cavs most struggled with one yeah being that that offensive glass against Robinson um one of the one of the biggest issues that I thought led to that was the Cavs just almost giving Jalen Brunson too much credit for his scoring ability and they would shift you know if J- if, if Brunson was isolating on one side of the floor they would shift Jared Allen over away from Robinson's body, who was kind of in the opposite dunker spot. And Allen mm-hmm. would, would shift over there to kind of show Brunson another body, but then Brunson would take his typical, you know, mid-ranger type of shot, and Allen would be away from, from Robinson's body, so he wasn't able to box out. And so you've got Karis Levert or Chetty Hosbud trying to, to body up Robinson, and they just they couldn't get it done. Right. So that that was one of the issues. I feel like they um, they treated Brunson just like an elite elite scorer when you know he's not a guy that's consistently getting to the rim where Jared Allen's rim protection would would really make him less efficient. Uh, really, though, too, I think part of the issue and part of the reason that maybe they felt like they had to have Allen shift over. Which, to your point, I mean, you're absolutely right. There are plenty of times where you know Allen's in the middle of the paint, so. He tries to run over to box out Robinson and it just totally doesn't work. But at the same time, with the amount of time that the Cavaliers spent trying to see if they could make Darius Garland or Jetty Osmond work as the primary defender on Brunson, um, especially early in the series when Jalen was kind of taking over, um, 
it just flat out wasn't working. And that led to a lot of, you know, just self-isolation, creative shots by Brunson that were going in. I mean, I think they kind of figured things out a little bit with Karras, um, especially when Isaac, especially in the last game, um, when Isaac started hitting some shots and you were able to afford having him on the floor, um, when you were able to make him go at him and make him work for his shots, maybe a bit of an over-adjustment to have Jarrett, you know, so far over on the help side. But I do think that especially early in that series, it was an issue to where the Cavaliers were just not finding the right answers for Brunson. Although again, like I feel like that you mentioned that the Cavs first shot half court defense was, was beyond. Okay. It was, it was very good in the series. Like uh, the, uh, they, they did a really good job and, you know, yes, Brunson had a couple of good games there, but even when Brunson is clicking, right, it's mostly two point jump shots that he's hitting. You know, he's not getting a ton to the line. He's not taking a ton of threes. And he's not also, when he's just working in isolation against a mismatch, he's also not generating open looks for his teammates if you don't overreact, right? So even on a on a good Brunson night, I feel like you can live with that as a half-court uh, defense. So it was just the additional element of he's still he's still being Jalen Brunson. He's still getting certain shots off and, and generating 20-plus points a game but then you're giving up 50% offensive rebounds on top of that. And, you know, speaking to how the Cavaliers decided to help and sort of make things more difficult for Brunson, they did it largely with Jared Allen at the center spot. Whereas you saw in game one against Miami, what the Heat did was they basically said, okay, Josh Hart, Obi Toppin, those guys want to take and make threes or attempt to make threes, go ahead. We're going to help off the wings. And Josh Hart had a had a really weird year shooting the basketball at times, just was very reluctant. And you saw that in that game one against the Heat. So it it was a it was a bit of a confusing strategy from from JB Bickerstaff. And you know, when you when you talk about a playoff series, I think one of the things that you would expect as a head coach, uh, uh, you know, a good head coach would be, okay, you know, you might lose the series, right? But Hopefully, if your coach is making adjustments and and recognizing some issues that you're dealing with, hopefully the adjustment you make cause you to lose at least in a different way. <laughs> but the Cavs lost four games all just yeah. on the offensive glass. Yeah. And, you know, I think JB obviously didn't coach a perfect series. Um, and I think there was a clear, you know, you could clearly tell which coach had been in the playoffs more in the past, um, just from a, a seasoned vet standpoint of Tibbs, you know, just understanding what it takes, understanding, you know, how to make adjustments, when to make adjustments in this type of setting, which is really just a setting that JB hasn't been in before. But yeah, Tibbs, um, Tibbs not exactly known as the greatest. Not exactly known as that type of guy, series. but that just shows, I mean, the level of, of experience that, you know, I mean, Tibbs is obviously not the best, you know, playoff adjuster of all NBA coaches, but he's been there before. And that's worth something when you compare someone to, you know, JB Bickerstaff, who is a, you know, really a first time playoff head coach. This is his first real playoff series. Um, And I think that along with the fact that the Cavaliers just aren't a very versatile team, not as versatile as I think a lot of people thought um, and just what they are capable of doing. Um, really both offensively and defensively, just again, looking at the lack of 
spacing and the lack of shooting that they're working with on the offensive end. Um, and just the lack of physicality um, compared to the two Knicks brutes and really like Isaiah Hartenstein is another example of someone who is just big and strong and, you know, can make an impact on the boards and is just going to make life difficult on you if you aren't willing to match that level of physicality, which the Cavs did for a game. Um, you know, game two kind of started looking like more of the same from game one where they just kind of looked a little overmatched physically. Um, and it almost seemed like Jared Allen, especially kind of just fought back a little bit for really the only point in time in that series to where all of a sudden something switched in him to where he was starting to, you know, play almost a little bit over physically at time, which isn't a bad thing. You know, I mean, we talk about that Julius Randall closeout. I believe there was a play where, you know, Jared Allen contested and I think Quentin Grimes maybe ended up with like a bloody lip, um, you know, but just was not able to sustain that level. Um, and I think that's, that's on the players more than it's on the coaching, just because we saw that it was there for a game. It's just a matter of, you know, how do you find that and sustain that throughout an entire series, which, you know, I mean, maybe you can pin that on the coach for not motivating his players clearly enough, but I think that there are a lot of different factors that go into it. And I think obviously JB wasn't perfect, but neither was anyone else. Yeah. And and you brought up the the challenges with playing a Coro, especially at the three with the two non-shooting bigs. Um, you know, they, they tried that at the start of game one, but went away, went away from that pretty quickly. And uh, the, then Okoro basically just became kind of the backup four, right? And this is where I kind of want to discuss the, uh, the, <laughs> the uh, elephant in the room. And that is Kevin Love's buyout. Uh, because it doesn't look know, great now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the guy, the Cavs struggled on the defensive glass. Love is a great defensive rebounder. They struggled yeah. hitting outside shots to space the floor around Mitchell and Garland. Love is a great shooter. Uh, so there's no doubt that he would have helped the Cavs and the, Cavs, the the series would probably have gone six or seven at least if, if Love had played. And, and I would go as far as to say the Cavs could have won the series if Love had played. I mean, just from a standpoint of grabbing defensive rebounds, um, Love definitely would have been huge in that situation. Um, yeah, I, I still think that Mitchell Robinson would have had a big series even if Love was there. But in the minutes where, you know, you're talking about Hartenstein being on the floor when maybe you have Love boxing out Randall instead, um, whatever it may be, um, it definitely would not have been the issue that it was. Um, and, and and I understood at the time why J.B. Bakerstaff took Love out of the rotation um, just from the standpoint of he was coming off a hand injury, um, I believe a thumb injury maybe, and just was not shooting the ball well at all. Like the, he had gone through a prolonged stretch at that point to where he just wasn't shooting and it was kind of unclear as to when that would turn around. Was this, you know, a health issue to where it's just going to be like this the rest of the season? Um, so from that standpoint, I understood why he took him out at the time of the rotation. Um, and I can understand why love obviously wasn't happy not being in the rotation. That being said, just with the amount of turnover in the rotation, you know, really throughout the entire year, um, with that glut of guys being, you know, through the regular season and playoffs of Dean Wade, Lamar Stevens, Isaac Okoro, Danny Green in the playoffs, you know, Kevin Love, whoever else. Um, it just kind of seemed like 
it was probably inevitable that Kevin Love would have gotten another opportunity um, had he stayed in Cleveland. But obviously, the past is in the past now. And Kevin Love made the right decision. Now it appears as the, the Heat are in the second round and the Cavs are not. So, yeah. But to, to your original point, yes, Kevin Love would have helped this Cavalier team play respectable basketball, which we really just did not see a lot of. Yeah, so I guess here's here's the here's my follow-up question to the whole Kevin Love thing. Is it better to have had Kevin Love and to have won one playoff series and gotten additional playoff experience theoretically? Or is it better to not had love, realize the huge weakness or challenge with your roster as it is currently constructed? And of course, like even if they had kept love, he might have been gone next season, right? Um, And he's at an age where he's not really a part of the future of this team. So could it be sort of a blessing in disguise that he wasn't there? So now Kobe Altman fully understands the the issues with the limitations. Yeah, Um, that's an interesting point. Something I really haven't thought of. I still I still think um, that the issues with this team would have presented themselves eventually. I would still have taken the playoff series win if that was the difference that Kevin Love was going to make. Um, just because again, like I, I do think that obviously you probably would have gotten the slap in the face that you just got um, as far as realizing it. But I still think that again, there were, there were red flags that could be seen even heading into the series. And I think that as the playoffs wore on, um, we would have continued to see those and it may have been a little bit more subtle, but they, it was, it was going to be their downfall at some point so and you can't you know you can't dwell on on that decision too much just because it was a weird thing to where not sure that you can blame the Cavs and I'm not really sure that you can be mad at Kevin Love for wanting something different but um but definitely definitely would have helped and I I would have taken Kevin Love um helping this team even if it meant hiding their flaws a little bit more for the present yeah, and part of the reason, you know, yeah, you bring up a good point that Love with the with the hand injury of some sort was was struggling to shoot the basketball. So there was there was a genuine reason in the regular season why he fell out. And another another reason why was because of the play of Dean Wade, who the Cavs front office believes in. They gave him a, an extension, right? And he was mm-hmm. one of the guys, along with Chetty Osman, who got more minutes in the absence of love that made it so that the Cavs looked like they were fine without him, right? And then in game one of the series against the Knicks, Dean Wade steps in with, uh, I don't know, four and a half minutes to go in the first quarter, comes out with uh, about nine minutes to go in the second quarter of that game, and the Cavs had, you know, uh, had a a rough stretch in those seven minutes, no doubt. But uh, Dean Wade never saw the floor again, <laughs> never saw the court again. So I, I'm, I'm, a little, uh, I'm a little perplexed at that, given that, you know, we even saw Bickerstaff in game five try out Lamar Stevens. Um, we also saw in, the, in, in a good chunk of those seven minutes that Wade got, Ricky Rubio was on the floor, and that was a sequence where Rubio had multiple turnovers. He blew that wide-open layup. So it was like, did the Cavs struggle here because of Dean Wade specifically, or was it something else? So the the Dean Wade situation is an interesting one, um, just because, again, like, I do think that this team believes in him. Um, 
And really from a coaching staff standpoint too, like this is a player who has had the trust of this coaching staff in the past last year when they were going through the, the, you know, large swaths of injuries that they went through at that point in time, Dean Wade started a lot of the games um, for the Cavs and really played fairly well in his minutes. I think that, you know, the original plan when Kevin Love was gone was to have Dean Wade fill a lot of that void. Um, And at a certain point in time, I thought he did a really good job with that. Um, He ended up hurting his shoulder. Um, By the time he came back from that shoulder injury, which, you know, cost him a good chunk of time, never really looked right again, shooting the ball. Like I think, you know, coming back from injuries, I don't have this stat pulled up, but I'm pretty sure he shot like low twenties from three. Um, after that injury, um, which I mean, it, it sucks. It's a shoulder injury for a guy who, you know, is a solid, you know, most of the time reliable shooter, but not a knockdown guy. If there's something bugging him there, like that, I I can understand how that might limit him. Um, and I believe in the one Dean Wade shot that we got to see in the, in the Knicks series, I'm pretty sure he just shot it long. I, I believe it was on the left wing, right? Yeah. Ended up hitting the opposite side backboard. Um so there, there was something that was just clearly off there with Dean um, that really was the reason that he was out of the rotation for really the final the final run of the regular season. Um, so, you know, bringing Dean Wayne in at all was more of an experiment than putting in a, you know, a mainstay in the rotation. So I still think that Dean Wade is going to be a piece of this team moving forward. Um, I think with an offseason to get healthy, he'll be back to pretty much what he was before. Um, but I also kind of understand like even in Isaac's limited minutes going with Isaac Okoro in that standpoint, just because I think at this point, Isaac is the better perimeter defender. Um, Dean Wade has been very, very good in the past, but I thought Isaac had taken a step forward to, you know, solidify himself as the best guy to put on, you know, a Jalen Brunson type. Um, So between that and them just, grasping desperately for any sort of other offensive production being the reason that they went with Jetty and Karras as much as they did. Um, I can understand that. And obviously, you know, going for the dice roll and Danny green, um, I'm not going to say that it failed miserably, but it didn't really work. Um, just kind of banking, I guess on playoff experience and veteran presence and potential to make shots. Um, it just really didn't bear out D- Danny green at this point in his career coming off of an ATL ACL tear just looks really, really old um, and moves really, really old trying to watch him get back and transition on defense. You know, he guys are just flat out beating him down the floor. Um, so the, the Dean Wade to back to your original point, that situation was just kind of a strange one just because yes, you, like in theory, like he was a guy that really could have helped you with floor spacing and with just, competent defense and another guy who isn't like a great defensive rebounder, but another guy with size who could have made an impact there potentially. Um, You mentioned Lamar Stevens. I actually think Lamar Stevens probably should have gotten more run in this series than he got um, only checking in for five minutes for his rebounding. I'm guessing specifically just because he's not afraid to jump things up inside um, and, and not being afraid to, you know, especially when Jared Allen is playing the way he was, not being afraid to get into guys and to just draw contact and play with physicality. I'm I'm really kind of surprised that they didn't go to him earlier. Yeah, and just like it, it felt like I actually uh, attended the uh, the Cavs Knicks game five, and it felt like especially in the, by the second half, it was they were just getting out toughed as well. 
Yes. Um, so yeah, Stevens obviously brings a pretty good rebounding and toughness there. He's going to play hard, but, uh, yeah, it also slightly felt like a panic move as well, since he hadn't shown up in the oh, entire series. It was they, absolutely a panic move. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone's denying that, but I, I, I don't blame anyone for making a panic move when you're down 16 in an elimination game either. So, yeah. Um, this might be what I'm about to say might be the nerdiest thing I've ever uttered on this podcast, but uh, I was really saying something. I'm excited to hear what you're about to say. I, I went back and uh, watched Dean Wade's uh, all of his possessions in those seven minutes of game one to truly get a <laughs> grasp of like how much of this was, was on Dean Wade, how much of it was on, uh, on the rest of the guys. And so in, in those seven minutes, I, I had 13 notable possessions from him where he he did something either positive or negative. I, I found seven slight to really positive possessions and then six slight to really negative possessions in there. You mentioned the one where he bricked the <laughs> bricked the left wing three. That was was not great. There was also a a sidestep three that the possession that actually led to that Rubio blown layup. Uh, he had a a sidestep three that he could have taken and he kind of passed on it. So it was not just the the three point miss, but there was some tentativeness as well. He passed up on a a, a right wing three and, and gave it to Karis Lavert in the corner, which led to a Lavert sort of step back three, which wasn't a great look. Um, but he also drew a foul on Julius Randle, hit two free throws. I thought um, on the defensive end, he played pretty well. He had great help on a on a play where Emmanuel quickly rejected a screen when he was the screen defender and he actually got to the baseline and cut him off and forced it. And that led to a turnover. He also, um, he stoned Julius Randall in semi transition and Rubio was able to come from behind and get a steal. There was, um, you know, a couple of plays defensively though, where Julius Randall was just isolating against him and, and he was able to just get to his shot and, and make it over kind of an average contest. But all in all, I watched that and I'm like, you know, Ricky Rubio seems to be the one that's he's he's had like two or three turnovers. He's bricked that layup. He's also hurting the spacing. I thought this the Knicks respected Dean Wade at least a, a bit and get and he he did provide some gravity out there. Yeah. Um, not, <laughs> not, a, not a ton, but some. not not a lot, <laughs> um, not as much as even and which, again, just the way that they ended up going like. Even Danny Green not doing anything, I thought, you know, commanded more attention than what what Dean Wade was providing at that point. That's fair. But, I mean, he was providing more than, like, an Okoro, obviously. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. It, uh, I, I didn't think it was that bad, and I, I was kind of shocked to see that that JB just never, never tried him again, despite the, the massive struggles at times on – uh, you know, on the offensive end of the floor. But the um, the next question I had for you, Justin, was, you know, with with the struggles, especially offensively, the one of the easy solutions to this is Mobley taking a giant leap offensively. Right. That uh, would that would help things. Yes. <laughs> yes. But but let's say that it's the the giant offensive leap isn't coming. Right. Um, maybe it's more a marginal improvement. Can the can the Cavs actually be a viable playoff offense if if Mobley and Allen are non-shooting bigs? 
it's going to be really, really tough if they're both just complete non-shooters. Um, I think you can look at any one guy and say, okay, a marginal improvement from you enough or like you alone wouldn't be enough. But if you just get marginal improvements across the board, you know, if Allen becomes just like someone who can take a bump and hit a hook again, if Mobley, you know, continues to, you know, kind of do the same thing and also be a little bit more effective with that in between game, as far as, you know, the short jumpers in the paint. Um, And if he's even to disable, you know, be semi-respectable from outside to where, you know, if you can trust him to hit a three a game at, you know, 33% even, you know, and that's just obviously just a random number, but if he can at least just be a not complete total non-factor from outside, he doesn't have to become, you know, a menace from out there. But if you get those two things alone, um, if you get another marginal improvement from Isaac Okoro or, you know, whoever it is that's in that position, um, I think that if those things can just kind of begin to add up, like, obviously, I don't think that's going to fix what the issues were for this team, but it's not going to be as terribly exposed as it was in this series. Um, But other than that, I mean, there are going to be things to address this offseason. Obviously, the hope is that, you know, you can make another find on the margins um, as far as a fifth guy who you can kind of play in that combo forward wing spot in whatever lineup it may be. Um, I'm I'm assuming that both Dean Wade and Lamar Stevens are going to be back. Um, If either of them are playing well at the right time, I think that they can be that, um, even if they weren't in this series. But it's, it's going to be a matter of just kind of, you know, throwing a few darts and seeing if any of them land again, um, which we'll see what guys end up really being available. I haven't dove too much into the free agent, you know, trash heap that is potentially going to be available for the Cavs to look at. But um, finding, you know, something else there, um, I think Karis LeVert just kind of is what he is. I think he's going to be back too um, on a reasonably team-friendly deal. I think that there's interest there between both sides that he – will ultimately resign just because the Cavaliers really need when he is on what he can provide, um, which obviously he kind of hurt him in a couple of games, but was also the reason I think that they were in a couple of the games. And a big reason that they won in game two was him, you know, really being a respectable three point shooter for, you know, the 48 minutes that the game was being played, but it, it is going to take, somebody else, you know, filling in and being respectable. I think that Evan and Jarrett can still be like non-threats from outside and, you know, you can have success that way, but it's not going to be with, you know, uh, Okoro not being able to hit anything from outside. It's not going to be with Karis LeVert having an off night. It's not going to be with, the guys that they were throwing out there in that fifth spot. It's just got to be something different. Something else is going to have to change. Yeah. And you know, the three, four position with guys that can shoot and defend, like that's the toughest, uh, that's the, you know, the biggest commodity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yes, it is. It's, it's going to be tough for the Cavs to, to upgrade there. And as you said, like there's, there's potential for internal growth. 
Um, you know, I would also say that like, even, you know, if they bring back the likes of Danny green, like him and Rubio, they're at the stage in the post ACL recovery where you don't expect them to be at their best. Right. Exactly. But a year from now, maybe they would be returning back to form. Um, so, you know, maybe they can, they can provide some things, but yeah, it's a, it's a tricky situation and the, you know, it would be nice to say like, yeah, you mentioned the Jared Allen, like, can he take a bump and hit a jump hook? We didn't really get to see that because the Knicks were never even, they were never even threatened to the point where it's like, oh, we just have to switch actions and we've got a small on Jared Allen. Like we just didn't see that because they were fine with Cavs four on threes and Mobley really struggled with that, uh, you know, that in-between game where he's catching it and Mitchell Robinson is playing that, uh, you know, that back and forth Draymond Green Mm -hmm. game. It's like, am I going to come to you? Am I going to stay back? And there were moments where I think like Mitchell Robinson read that as soon as Mobley jumps, he likes to shoot then. So he would then go to contest that little floater push shot as soon as Mobley left the ground um, and, and make that shot tough. And Mobley, yeah, was not able to hit that. And then, you know, we saw it maybe once or twice all series where we got that Mobley to Allen lob play. Um, so that's, that's a struggle. And then, yeah, JB not really understanding and emphasizing the fact that like, if, if we have Allen be the screener, we're bringing their best rim protector away from the basket and it makes things easier. Even if we like Mobley as the short roller more than Allen, it's a lot easier to score inside when Julius Randle is the rim protector as opposed to Mitchell Robbins. Yeah. Um, just a really, really weird Jared Allen series in general. Um, and like really just didn't even seem like, especially I was actually, you said you were at game five. Yes. So, so was I, I was actually at that game too. Oh, um, I don't okay. know you were there, <laughs> but um, I don't know if you noticed, but like in the second half when Jared Allen was really just looking unplayable, got subbed out and was just kind of buried on the bench. You know, most guys are standing up um, engaged in the game and he's just kind of sitting down, like just hiding almost on the bench. I don't want to say that he was, but just, you know, just disengaged at times, just seemed out of focus. Um, Just really, really, really weird series for him in general. It seemed like, I mean, he even said, you know, at the end of the series that I don't remember the exact quote, but something along the lines of, you know, I didn't expect the lights to be this bright. Um, So obviously that's semi-concerning to hear from someone on this team who does at least have some playoff experience. But again, I think experiencing this again um, is hopefully a good sign that, you know, okay, He has been through this now um, to where the next time we see him in a playoff setting, which hopefully we will, um, he at least isn't going to have like this mentality of just kind of seeming shell-shocked at times. Yeah. And, you know, to relate this situation, you know, both the, the Cavs and the Timberwolves made trades for, for Utah star players, right. This off season. And to relate this to Minnesota's situation, you know, they were obviously a disappointment um, in, in the regular, not only in the postseason, but also in the regular season. Uh, and the, the thought a lot of people have in terms of how that team could potentially, if they 
if they felt it was necessary to change course, the best route potentially with like in terms of value and stuff would be, okay, well, yeah, then we, we can trade cat and get some things maybe that better fit around Gobert and, and Edwards. The, to me, seemingly the, the Cavs have put themselves in a scenario where, yeah, they've got these four, these four players in Mitchell Garland, Mobley and Allen, and they don't have a lot of flexibility or assets moving forward. So the the guy to me that if you were going to say, okay, this this experiment doesn't work, and I'm not saying we're, we're already to that point, it's been one postseason, but Jared Allen to me would be the guy, especially after that performance where you go, okay, um, perhaps, you know, if Mobley adds some muscle, we bring in, you know, the center is the easiest position to get talent in the league. You bring in somebody that can, that can just be a stopgap starter and then you get a potential wing or, or somebody in, in a, an Allen trade is uh, is that something that the Cavs should be considering? Or are you just saying this is uh, you know, this is his first time in the postseasons. It's not a big deal, but you know, they're, they're paying Jared Allen 20 million a year and he just got completely outplayed by Mitchell Robinson and Robinson, you know, no doubt is a, is, is a good, a good starting center in the league, but the expectation for Allen, I mean, he's made an all-star team, is to to outplay players like Mitchell Robinson. Yeah, and, you know, this was a good matchup for Mitchell Robinson, and it was a bad matchup for Jared Allen, just because the, the style of play of each of them just does naturally favor Mitch. Um, so I'm not going to say that, like, Mitchell Robinson, you know, it's not like... Jarrett Allen played bad and that's why Mitchell Robinson was able to take advantage. Like Mitchell Robinson is just a really, really good player who had a good matchup, not a really, really good player, but like a a very, a very solid, dependable, reliable player um, in this type of setting. So like, I do think that, you know, credit is owed to, to Mitchell Robinson for just taking advantage of it. Um, But to your, to your original point, I don't think we're at the point now um, and I don't think we're really close to the point yet of where you're talking about breaking up the core four. Um, if you're in the same spot next off season to where, okay, we just experienced the same issues that we experienced last off season. Um, we're a year closer to Donovan Mitchell's contract coming up and he still hasn't given a commitment. Um, that's when you start to look to shake things up. Um, obviously well, I believe is, is Mitchell not, uh, you know, he, I believe he's under contract for next season, and then the following year is a player option, right? I thought it was two more years. Well, let me check that as you're talking. Okay. But anyway, um, back to just the point that was being made. Um, yes, I think that that is something that can be considered um, if you go through a year of similar failures to what you just experienced but I'm still not even entirely sold that Allen might be the guy. Um, And again, I just want to make this totally 100% clear um, before, you know, saying what I'm about to say that I don't believe that breaking them up is the answer right now. Um, But if you're in a point where you do experience the same exact issues as you experienced this year and next year's postseason, um, I think that there could be a case to be made at that point that if Mobley really hasn't taken that step forward, um, to be like on the same, 
you know, level of player as a Donovan Mitchell type to where like he's having that level of impact on the end on both ends of the floor. Um, he's still really not ready to be your full-time center. Um, I still think that there's a case that could be made that Evan at that point might still have more value in a deal than Jared Allen um, to where if you're going to really go for one specific player, a team might want, a team would probably want Mobley over Allen. Um, so from the standpoint of you need to have a full-time center and the standpoint of, I think Allen probably not being as valuable in most teams' eyes as Mobley, um, that may, if things continue to go south, if, 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 big if, that may be the piece that ends up going. Well, but I would, I would argue that, well, one, I think the, the Cavs championship upside is highly predicated on Mobley's upside. And right, which is why if Mobley's upside starts to become more and more clear that maybe it's not going to happen, they may try to cash in on something that is more win now than what he is providing, which again, right. like is in the situation that like it becomes increasingly clear that Mobley maybe isn't going to be that guy. If that happens next year, which I think if you were just kind of stagnate into the same type of player that he was this year, if there isn't any real noticeable growth, I think that that could, that could happen. Yeah, but I would still argue that what Mobley provides is harder to replace than what Allen provides, given his defensive versatility, his ability to defend multiple positions, um, you know, the the theoretical possibility of being a capable offensive four while also, you know, providing way better than average defense from the four spot. Absolutely. Do you but, trust him to play five full time for you? No, but that's what I'm saying. I think it's easier to find a stopgap center than it is to find a replacement for Mobley at the four. And again, we're talking about obviously like we, we're just talking about, you know, I obviously like I still think that Mobley will be a better player than Allen. I'm not saying that's not the case. I'm just saying, you know, as far as if you're looking to make a championship move, um, I think a case could be made that, you know, the, the piece that you could get for Mobley might be better than the piece you could get for Allen. Um, yeah, I mean, if well, you're also, Allen, yeah, I, I, I would say you don't trade Mobley unless you're getting like a superstar. Back. Right, and that's probably the trade that you would do it for. But again, we're also talking about right now. We're talking about what we think of Evan Mobley's value being right now. If we go through another year and Evan Mobley hasn't really improved, are we still talking about Evan Mobley as that guy? I mean, I, I think the, the current Evan Mobley is still just – an unbelievably great defensive player. Yeah, he is. Um, and yeah, like we saw, I, I feel like we saw some marginal improvements on the offensive end. It probably wasn't the leap that most people hoped for offensively in year two, but we've seen with previous young players that, you know, progress isn't, you know, a linear curve, right? It's a, it can kind of yeah. go up and down and sometimes you might stagnate and then, and then the, the following year make the big leap. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I get, and I, I looked up the, uh, the, the Mitchell thing and you were right. He does have two more years prior to the player option. So that does give the Cavs a little bit more time, but it does, you know, with these star players. And if, as you said, when they don't, um, extend, it does, uh, it does the pressure mounts quickly and, you know, there's, there's an element of, 
you know, win, win a team that yes, the under JB Bickerstaff, they've, they've continued to improve year after year in the regular season. He's clearly a pretty good regular season coach. He's gotten good defensive performances, especially out of this group. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Knicks are not a, in my mind, are not a championship contender. You know, this was a, the, the Knicks, yes, are in the second round of the playoffs, but um, getting absolutely destroyed by them is not a good sign, even with improvement next year, that this team, as it's currently constructed, is, uh, is anywhere near where they want to go. So the question is, do you – do you take this intel and say, okay, Jared Allen just got outplayed by Mitchell Robinson. J.B. Bickerstaff just got outcoached by Tom Thibodeau and say, and be proactive? Or do you wait another year and, as you said, potentially be in this exact same situation where you go, okay, Bickerstaff didn't make adjustments again, and Jared Allen didn't produce like an all-star center again those are the those are the tough calls for for any GM and uh, Kobe Altman has uh you know the most important offseason in his Cavs tenure coming up and to be clear again I do think that the answer is to bring back the core of this team and bring back your coach I just think you have to see what it looks like again next year um parting with any of those pieces you know again we, we talk about which piece would you part with um in a a year from now, if things are the same, um, I think that it would be really, 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 really high risk to part with any of those guys now. Um, Just because so many, a a lot of the performances that we saw, I think not a lot of them, but some of them were uncharacteristic again, as far as if you can bank on maybe Ricky Rubio is a rotation level player again next year, after you know an offseason to get healthy, Dean Wade is you know a rotation caliber player again with an offseason to get healthy. Um, and again, just the marginal improvements, whether it's spacing wise from Isaac and Evan, that frees up more space to work for Darius and Donovan. Um, you know, a year for Jared Allen to feel more comfortable playing in those situations to where he's at least somewhat more of an offensive threat than he is now. Um, I think that that's a very, very plausible thing to happen. Um, And it's, you know, you're banking too on the upside of you could see a real Evan Mobley breakout next year, and that will change, you know, the complexion of your team entirely. So it it definitely isn't a great feeling through this off season saying like, Hey, we just got destroyed. Um, but we're pretty much okay with where we're at. Um, but I, I just don't think that they have a lot of options. It's not like they have ammunition outside of that core four to really shake things up a ton. Um, and I just think each of those guys, you just have to bank on them being better. Um, because I think all four of them can be, um, it's just going to be a matter of, can you make moves around the margins and marginal improvements within those guys that will allow the others to, you know, play a little bit more freely. So, yeah. And, um, you know, we've, we've been talking about the Cavs for a while, so we'll get to the, uh, the Warriors Lakers here in a few minutes, but I just wanted to briefly uh, discuss Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland's performance. Uh, you know, Mitchell of course had that uh, terrific game one scoring the basketball, then had a really good facilitating game two, 
but then was largely just completely taken out of it with the Knicks, uh, you know, um, showing high or blitzing on screens and lots of turnovers, lots of missed shots. I think he was five of 18 in, in, in that game four where the Cavs felt like they, they had a chance to win that, but Mitchell just, just couldn't make shots. Uh, and then Darius Garland had the wonderful first half of game two, had the wonderful third quarter in, uh, in game four, but mostly outside of that was, was pretty quiet. And it not only was a lack of their usual shot making, right? It seemed like they just didn't hit as many shots as you would expect. Um, but they really, to me, didn't handle the pressure well. There were a couple of times in that game five where I'm just going, you know, do you guys realize the defenders have arms when they when they they blitz <laughs> you because they just threw some of the laziest passes out of those uh, out of those traps? Yeah, yeah, and again, I think. You know, we kind of saw the same thing with Darius last year in the playing game where when that level of pressure was really ramped up and they really started to target him, um, you could tell he was really feeling that pressure um, and it was affecting the way that he would normally play. Um, Obviously, again, not a great sign that we see that two years in a row. Um, It's something to track moving forward as to whether that will be something that happens you know, year by year to where, okay, he's just not great handling this pressure or whether it is going to be something that, you know, slowly over time, a young player adjusts to these types of things. Um, Maybe he plays on a court with a little bit more spacing and that, you know, limits the amount of trapping that a team can do because it just gives you more options to pass to. Um, But we'll see. Um, Last note I have on the Cavs. Wouldn't it be great to have Isaiah Hartenstein as a backup center right now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who the Cavaliers had as a restricted free agent and decided not to extend a qualifying offer to. Who ended up going and signing a non-guaranteed camp deal with the Clippers and making the team, being their backup center, playing great, now coming to the Knicks and playing a big role in this series really is, again, you know, just helping the Knicks maintain a constant level of size and physicality throughout entire games. Um, It would have been great to have a guy like that on the Cavalier side. Um, And really, I don't think that I think to this point, even with the flaws that were exposed um, in this series, I think the Cavs front office has done a very good job taking advantages of, you know, opportunities that were presented to them. Um, I thought overall, you know, this rebuild has still been a success as far as the team they've been able to assemble from what they had three years ago. But um, I do think that Isaiah Hardenstein walking for just literally nothing and just not even extending a qualifying offer was one big mistake. I, I felt this way at the time, um, that, that was that was a really mistake that they made as a team. But um I guess I'm not gonna go too long on Isaiah Hardenstein, but I just had to I had to say that part at least. And the Cavs aren't the only team that have under that has uh, undervalued Hardenstein over the last no. years. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it was a, certainly a, a very frustrating performance from just about uh, just about everybody on the roster and the the coaching staff. Uh, you know, I, I was also thinking about this too. You know, talking about Garland and Mitchell struggling to deal with traps and blitzes and all that. You know, did they did they uh, invert? Uh, a single or not invert did they uh did they flip a single screen in the series 
see the thing was there just were that were there weren't that many set, right? It's not like they were running that many ball screens, um, just because I feel like the help was just there and it just didn't really work. But yeah, most of the time it was mostly just Donovan Mitchell settling into that little elbow shot um or trying to make something work on the perimeter from three. And you know, same can kind of be said for Darius. You're right. That's yeah. <laughs> and yeah, like Mitchell tried to, you know, Mitchell is one of the most prolific guys at like rejecting the screen. And it felt like the Knicks were mm-hmm. locked in on that and, and shut that down. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a mess, but yeah, let's, let's move on to uh, let's move on to the, the second topic we have, which is the, the second round matchup in the Western conference. We've got uh, the, the two lower seeds pulling off upsets, or if you want to call them upsets, the, the sixth seed Golden State Warriors dispatching the Sacramento Kings behind Stephen Curry's 50-point Game 7 performance. And then uh, the Los Angeles Lakers took care of an injured, hobbled Memphis Grizzlies squad in sixth. So, Justin, when you, uh, when you think about this matchup, of course, there's the uh, LeBron versus Curry for, what, the fifth time in the playoffs now? If, if, mm-hmm. And I guess sixth if you count the play-in from a couple years ago. Uh, but, uh, you know, beyond just the that star matchup, what, uh, what sticks out as far as uh, these two teams going at it? You know, I think the one thing that, you know, I am going to be watching – um, in the series is just how they decide to handle Steph um, as far as, you know, who the primary assignment is, how they cover Steph, you know, ball screens, whether it is just going to be a matter of, you know, who are you able to switch? Who are you able to trust to switch? Um, how hard are guys going to be fighting over? Who are you going to start with him on him really is, is what I want to get to is like, is, are you just going to start Jared Vanderbilt on Curry? just to put the length on him to bother him just because you can trust him to navigate screens. Do you go with Schroeder? Do you go with Reeves? Like, I don't really, I'm kind of interested to see what they do try. Um, Just because I feel like he's just, you're going to have to throw something different at him. I feel like too, it's not like you're going to be able to just stay with the same thing throughout a game, but I'm just going to be really interested to see, you know, on that end, how they, start on him, how they change throughout the game, what all they try to throw at him just to throw him off in any way that they can. Um, and how Curry reacts to that, how everybody else reacts to that, you know, who else steps up. Um, but on the, on the Lakers end too, um, just how the Warriors are able to limit their rim pressure. I think that they are pretty decently built, even with their defense, not being quite what it's been in the past to, you know, throw, physical guys, big guys at LeBron, um, you know, not Dylan Brooks. And then when Dylan Brooks doesn't work, Xavier Tillman. Um, but, you know, having guys like Draymond Green, like Kevin Looney, who can, you know, I'm not going to say they're, they're going to stop LeBron, but again, make things more difficult on him, tire him out throughout the course of a game. Um, and same thing with Anthony Davis to where, I'm really just interested to see if Anthony Davis is going to be able to take advantage of mismatches in this series. You know, it, if Anthony Davis gets Wiggins switched on to him or even like clay, um, are you going to be able to trust Anthony Davis to take that guy in the post and, you know, create offense efficiently out of those, which is just not something that we've seen consistently from him this year. So at least not, you know, in the second half of the season, I would say, 
but those are some of the big things I'm looking at um, as far as like what the stars are going to be doing and how those teams are going to react to that. Um, there's obviously some players in the margins too, that I'll be watching. Um, does Malik Beasley play at all? Um, what type of role does Rui Hachimura play in things? Is he going to be able to survive on the floor defensively? Could he be a guy that could maybe potentially stretch things out and get Looney out of the paint um, just to help from a rebounding standpoint for the Lakers? Um, is Jordan Poole going to be a playable basketball player? Um, a lot of different things that I think are going to be really interesting to watch in this series. Yeah, the uh, the Steph assignment obviously is number one because, I mean, I, I, I think we both agree Steph is the best player in this series. At this point, I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah. So I think LeBron has the capability to be the best player in any given game, but I expect Steph to probably have the best impact throughout. Yeah. So you're right that, uh, you know, Vanderbilt is an option, although, you know, and yes, I do think that Vanderbilt, he's, he's quite adept at, at navigating screens, especially for his size. And he's obviously got length that they would like to put on him, but I don't know if the discipline is fully there for Vanderbilt. He's still a little chaotic as a defender, uh, chaotic for good and for ill. Uh, so I, I worry a little bit in terms of him, you know, chasing Steph off the ball, you know, those, those classic where he, he gets rid of it and then relocates and gets it back. Um, I would be a little bit nervous about having Vanderbilt on him in those situations you know, Austin Reeves, he's been like a, you know, he's a solid defender, but I wouldn't, I, I don't particularly love that matchup. They've got Schroeder off the bench that is clearly a better matchup for him than than someone like D'Angelo Russell. But yeah, the, the options the Lakers have, I don't think are ideal. And when you talk about the, the inverse situation where who's guarding LeBron, well, I think any of Wiggins, Draymond or even Looney can do a reasonable job on 38 year old LeBron. Um, there's, you know, you, you talked about Anthony Davis and his ability to take advantage of if he's, if he's got a smaller guy on him, you know, I thought AD was the, um, you know, the best player for the Lakers in that Grizzlies series. And he was terrific down the stretch of the season with LeBron out, you know, helping the Lakers maintain their, their spot in the play in. So he's got to be huge. And as you said, he's got to be huge on both ends because this Warriors defense, yeah, they're not as dominant as they were last year, but they also played most of the season without Gary Payton, uh, the second who's, who's now back and Wiggins didn't play a lot of the year. So the, this Warriors team whole is still, I would argue a very good to borderline elite defensive unit. And they've got the size and the basketball IQ to to make that inside scoring for the Lakers a challenge. And they're also one of the best teams that are adept at ignoring the right players, right? If Troy Brown comes mm-hmm. in the game, it doesn't seem like he's hit a single shot yet in the playoffs. They're going to completely ignore him. Yeah, um, I, I'm not totally confident, um, really, even with Andrew Wiggins on LeBron I just think that LeBron's going to be able to take advantage of that matchup just from a strength standpoint um I do think it's going to have to be a lot of Draymond a lot of Kevon Looney um I I think that this could be a Jonathan Kaminga series um as far as just another guy who can match up with 
that type of big wing and other, you know, big man that the Lakers might have, whether it be Vanderbilt, LeBron, um, Rui, AD. Um, I think that he's going to be a guy that they lean on um, and more so than I think that they did in this past series. So I wanted to jump in and, and just mention your your comment about LeBron and his strength advantage on Wiggins. I would agree, but I would also say that this Lakers roster is not well suited to letting LeBron take advantage of his strength because in that starting lineup, you've got Anthony Davis, who hasn't hit threes all year. You've got Jared Vanderbilt, who shot 30%, and the Warriors are going to be fine letting fly from three. So even if you've got, even if you can say, okay, Wiggins, uh, if LeBron has the opportunity to take 10 dribbles and just back him under the basket, that's a problem. But the Warriors aren't going to let him do that. They, they well, I mean, lot, it's a matter of, of you know, up. it's a matter of backing guys down. But uh, even with the lack of spacing, um, I think even just the drives to the rim, um, whether it's, you know, attacking from the perimeter and getting downhill or it's a, you know, back down into a LeBron fade or a, you know, drop step to get right, right to the basket. Um, I, I, I'm confident LeBron will be able to find his way to the basket. Um, again, like I, I think that he'll be able to find his way to the basket regardless. It's just going to be a matter of who's going to make him work the hardest. Um, and who's going to be able to tire him out the best. Um, and I, I just think that's going to be bigger bodies like Kaminga, like Draymond, like Kevon Looney more so than it will be a guy like Wiggins. I just think that, LeBron is still going to be able to get through him. Um, no, I'm not going to say like he's just going to be a turnstile defender because that's not what Andrew Wiggins is. But I just think it's going to take more brute force to slow him down um, than what your typical, you know, Gary Payton, Andrew Wiggins is going to be able to provide in this series. I think, again, I think we kind of saw that with Dylan Brooks in the last series to where, you know, that level of defender, not that level of defender, but that size defender, um, you know, regardless of the level of physicality you're going to bring, regardless of the length, I just think LeBron's going to be able to find a way to work through that regardless. Yeah, I guess, you know, a lot of this, it's, you know, it's it's not complex, but a lot of this is going to come down to how well LeBron and AD are capable of playing, you know. Um, yeah. When I watched that Lakers-Memphis series, I didn't think that was – played at as high of a level as the Warriors King series. The Warriors King series felt to me like a conference finals. The Grizzlies Lakers It, it did series, have that sort of feeling. Yeah. The, the Lakers the Lakers Grizzlies series felt like a first round series. Um now that could be, you know, uh that could be meaningless, right? It could just be it was ugly because of the circumstances, right? Matchups do make a big difference. But when I watched that, I I was like, yeah, LeBron's 38. He's he's still a great player but he's probably more like a top 20 guy than he's, oh, he's a top two or three player in the league now. So, you know, when you talk about Andrew Wiggins, there's there's not 10 guys in the league that I think are better, you know, wing defenders than, than Andrew Wiggins. So I think he's a, a pretty great option to have for LeBron. And Draymond Green is a pretty great option um, for, for LeBron as well. So I guess I just tend to have more faith in LeBron being a playoff contributor than maybe even consensus at this point. Like I just still think that he's going to be able to turn it on when it matters. Um, and for how long, like, we'll see, we'll see if this is an issue to where like he does just gradually wear down more and more and more, but I just have 
a hard time doubting what he's capable of in short spurts um, and short spurts being, you know, gives just giving your maximum effort for a playoff series. Um, like I agree that like in the scope of the league, like, yes, Andrew Wiggins is a very good option to throw on him. I just think that there are not a lot of good options when you still have LeBron James playing at the level that he's capable of playing at in short stints. Um, and I just think it, it's really, it's going to depend on LeBron. Um, and, you know, obviously we were going to get to our predictions a little bit later. I still think that the Warriors are going to win this series. I just ultimately don't think it's going to be enough, but I do still think that we're going to get a very, very good LeBron series. I just think that there's all of the motivation in the world there from the standpoint of obviously like you're in the second round of the playoffs, like you get here, you get to the conference finals. Like you can, you can make it to the finals at this point. Like it's, it's a realistic goal. Um, You're playing against, you know, the Warriors, which is a team that you have a lot of history with. I just think that the motivation is going to be there for LeBron. And I still think that given the circumstances, he is still capable of being the player who can, can give you what he has given you in the past. Yeah, I mean, there are there were definitely moments in that Grizzly series. Of course, there was that uh, that uh, game tying basket. What was that in Game Four, right at the end of regulation, where mm-hmm. he drives right and finishes over the contested Jaron Jackson Jr. Like, yeah, there are definitely moments where you can tell LeBron's kicking it into gear, and you know he can he can look like his old self for a two or three possession stretch, right? But what I think is a big difference between this series against the Warriors than the the Grizzlies series is, you know, LeBron could spend a decent amount of time guarding Dylan Brooks and just ignoring him or guarding Santi Aldama and not having to do much or a David Roddy, right? Um, regardless of who you're covering in that Warriors starting lineup, if you're dealing with Kavon Looney, you got to work your ass off to box him out. If you're it's probably going to be Draymond to start, isn't it? If you're guarding Draymond Green, you're going to have to run through a lot of pick and rolls uh, yeah. and a lot of a lot of movement. If you're guarding Clay Thompson, you got to run through a bunch of off-ball screens. If you're guarding, uh, you know, Andrew Wiggins, he can isolate and attack. The- I, I do think that this is going to be a very big Gary Payton series, or not season, but series. I think that we're going to see a lot of Gary Payton in this series, and I think that's the area where you can hide him. Um, now, you can also make the argument that maybe that there are other players in your starting five or in your five man unit, whenever it might be that you would rather hide on, on Gary Payton, whether it's Malik Beasley in the game, whether it's, I'm just interested to see what the minute share is between Lonnie Walker, Troy Brown and Malik Beasley. Um, Just as far as, you know, who gets the first crack at it, um, how that changes throughout the series, depending on who's playing well. Why do you think it's going to be a big Gary Payton series? Because, you know, when I look at the Lakers roster, you know, a, a big part of why I feel like Kerr went to him in game seven is like, okay, we got to slow down Fox, right? And they've got Monk as well. So a couple of really dynamic guards to to try to slow down. I don't feel like in this series that's as big of a concern. Now, the Lakers have Dennis Schroeder, I guess, but... Um, I guess my thing is just with this team, um, you're not going to be able to rely on LeBron for the entire game. And we they just haven't been able to rely on Anthony Davis for entire games either. So it is going to have to be, I think a lot of things running through D'Angelo Russell, running through Reeves, running through Schroeder. Um, And if they're able to shut those guys off, then that's where I kind of think the advantage can be gained by the Warriors to where they can really start to ramp things up. The the Lakers can kind of start to run out of options on offense. Um, That's more so the point I'm getting to is just, 
are you able to trust LeBron to be that for an entire half every single game? You know, are you going to trust Anthony Davis that these 13 point games are just totally behind you at this point? Um, and are you going to be able to run offense through them for the entire, you know, the entirety of every game? Um, because otherwise it is going to go through those guys in the perimeter. And obviously like those aren't outstanding options. They're not, you know, deer and Fox, they might not even be on the same level of what Malik Monk was last series, but um, they are still going to have to run a lot through him. And I think having Gary Payton out there to, to make life difficult on those guys is going to be, I, I personally think that that's going to be an important part of the series. I think he's going to have a very, very large role and just kind of, stalling out the Lakers offense in general at times. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think we're both in agreement that this is this is going to be more of a defensive series. Mm-hmm. And so yes, you can make an argument that Gary Payton adding him to the mix makes the Lakers offense even that much more uh, you know, um I, I said this quote over Twitter and, and Corbin Ford gave me a hard time for saying this, but uh, potentially grind the Lakers offense to a halt. Um, but at the same time, there's the give and take, right? As you know, Gary Payton did not look very good offensively in that game seven against Sacramento. And that gives the Lakers somebody, as you said, to hide LeBron on. So my thought is that I don't even know if they need Gary Payton the second to play a ton of minutes for them to still do well defensively the Warriors. So, you know, you talked about like the fact that the if the Lakers can't rely on LeBron and AD to be those offensive stars and they're putting a lot of possessions in the hands of Russell and Schroeder and Reeves and the Warriors are instead focusing a lot on Curry and Thompson and Wiggins and and maybe a Jordan Poole. Like if that becomes the game, regardless of Gary Payton is in there, I think that's just a win for the Warriors. And, you know, ultimately that might just end up being what happens here. Um, again, I, I do think that the Warriors are going to end up ultimately having the upper hand, but it'll be interesting. Overall, like I said, I just, I want to see what Anthony Davis is going to be able to bring. Um, and if he's going to be able to just bring, you know, a consistent, reliable source of offense night in and night out. Um, and if these kind of invisible games are just, you know, low efficiency games are behind him because if he is able to be that guy throughout this entire series, which is going to be incredibly tough with Looney and, and Draymond Green down low, making life difficult for you. But um, if he is, that does change things a lot for them. And the other piece there that, you know, I mean, we saw it in in one game against the Grizzlies. What is Rui Hachimura in this series? Because yeah. I think it could go to the point where, again, like he's not going to be, you know, killing you from three, but he could potentially stretch the floor out a little bit and, you know, operating in the mid range. Um, I could also see a world where he's not hitting those shots and he's virtually unplayable. Yeah, I mean, that was the big thing in that early in the Memphis series was that he was hitting those three-point shots. And um, for for the postseason, Rui is 13 of 26 from downtown. So that has really opened up his offensive game because, as you said, he does have – he came into the NBA with a mid-range package, right? And he's got the ability to to finish at the rim, too, if you you give him a runway. So I think he's been a good offensive piece 
for the Lakers. Now, I, I don't think his defense has been that strong. And, you know, that's the that's the big challenge with the Warriors is they make all five of your defenders have to be locked in at all times. Which is the, why you know, I'm just concerned that this might just be a series where Rui just gets played off the floor. Yes, it's it's very possible. Um, but like thinking about how this uh, it's funny because with both starting lineups with the Warriors playing both bigs and Looney and green, I think that plays into the hands of the Lakers defense because they can, they can blitz the, uh, the Steph pick and roll and have the Warriors and be comfortable probably with the Warriors playing four on three. If Anthony Davis is one of the three, right. Mm -hmm. Um, so they could try to do some pre-switching and that sort of thing to keep Davis at the rim, stay on the shooters and allow him to deal with the two players, the one guy under the basket in, in Looney potentially or Green and, and the guy charging in at him. But uh, then on the other end, also with Vanderbilt, right, like the the Warriors can can send extra attention at LeBron and AD and even Austin Reeves and, and Russell when they're running pick and roll actions. So I think we're going to see pretty quickly, both teams probably adjust to um, adjust to the situation to try to spruce up their offense. And we saw that with the Warriors in the last series as well of getting only having only one of green and Looney on the floor at once to mm. really make it challenging for Davis to, to have as big of an impact because if he's the guy on the, on the screen setter and everyone else is a shooter, his impact at the rim is, is uh, you know, not going to be as substantial. Mm -hmm. I think you could come into that issue. And again, I, I wonder if, I just wonder what the non Anthony Davis, Anthony Davis minutes look like for the Lakers. Um, whether it is really that you can rely on to, you know, fill in those gaps whether it's LeBron and Vando kind of collectively playing the five and just trying to survive with, with that combination and that pairing um, when probably when Looney is off the floor, but um, it's definitely going to be, to be interesting just because I just don't think that the Lakers have a ton of options there. Um, Mo Bamba certainly isn't the option, isn't the answer. So and, and that's that's ultimately where I kind of think it's just going to be a matter of I just think that the Lakers are going to run out of answers for what the Warriors are doing sooner than the Warriors are going to run out of answers for what the Lakers are doing. Yeah, I uh, I largely agree there. And uh, to be honest, I think I trust the Warriors depth and, and the versatility of players that they can go to, like if if Kerr doesn't think that uh, Gary Payton II is is doing enough on the offensive end, like he can go with DiVincenzo, who provides a little more shooting, right? But still mm -hmm. is a decent defender. Um, you know, if he uh, he needs to get a little bit more size on the wing, we saw Moses Moody give him some some decent. Yeah, towards the Moody looked Moody game. looked fine. I don't think he's going to factor in too heavily to the series, but he 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 looked okay. I mean, yeah, playing against you know the average wings that the Lakers are going to be throwing out there. I think he could be just fine. I like Moody more than I like Troy Brown, to be honest. Um, that's, that's an interesting debate. I'd have to think about that a little bit. Um, but I mean, I, I, it's certainly not like a big advantage either way. Yeah. And there's the whole issue again with, 
We've seen not only LeBron teams, but most teams, and even Sacramento to a certain extent in those first two games, the Kings were able to beat the the, the Warriors in the first two in large part because they were able to run and, and do really well in transition and outscore the Warriors, right? Mm-hmm. But the Warriors' offensive system is so unique, right, that you you often do see teams, especially with the Warriors being at home to start this series, you see them um, – by the way, Troy Brown is shooting 8% from three in the postseason. Oh, um, so he has made one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you see um, you see teams just – and the Cavs had this seemingly every year, even the year they won, where they just get down 0-2 in Golden State because this Warriors offensive system is unique and it takes a while for players to adjust. And the Lakers have a mm-hmm. lot of guys. They have – uh, quite a few in their rotation that don't have a ton of playoff experience and especially so against the Warriors. Now, LeBron has plenty. Is is he enough to, you know, get these guys to be locked in from the get-go? I, I don't know about that, but, you know. I think it helps, but it yeah. certainly doesn't account for the fact that, yeah, we just haven't seen so many of these guys in this situation. And some of them, you know, including Anthony Davis, got a taste of the Warriors in, in the postseason with that matchup in the play-in, but, uh, you know, that was a Warriors team without Clay Thompson, without Andrew Wiggins. Um, you know, they were, they were playing guys that you could leave and it was literally, it was really a Stephen Draymond led team. This team is a lot more deep and talented outside of that. And, and let's not forget, like Kevon Looney is playing at a really, really high level right now. Yeah. I mean, he, he outplayed DeMondis Sabonis, and I, I I wasn't expecting – part of the reason why I picked the Warriors over the Kings was I didn't expect Sabonis to play that well, and that ended up being correct. But Looney was fantastic. No, he really was. Um, like I said, I really don't see I – mean, obviously, Anthony Davis is going to be a different matchup than Looney. Um, like, I don't think that Looney is going to be putting up 20 rebound games against Anthony Davis the way he was against you know the, the Kings big man room. But um question for you. Yeah. What do we see from Poole out of the series? Yeah, he was uh towards the end of that uh of that series, he was just kind of out of control and making uh, really poor decisions. And there was a a mic'd up segment in that game seven early on where Steve Kerr goes, Jordan, you just drove into three guys and took a tough shot and <laughs> it had no chance of going in. And they got a, a layup on the other end. Like you just need to, you need to uh, play within yourself and take what the defense gives you. Right. Um, so, yeah, you don't, you don't really know. I guess, again, I go back to the, the depth of this Warriors team that like, if, if pool isn't giving them much, then they can basically you have other options you can lean on. Right. You can just play him when Steph is off the floor and that's it. Right. Which yeah. could be as little as like eight minutes if you need to, if he's that bad. Um, but he does have the ability. He, I feel like over the course of, if this series were to go seven games, I feel like you're going to get a couple of good Jordan pool games, um, which, you know, I can't necessarily say for some of those uh, some of those Lakers guys off the bench. You brought up a guy in Lonnie Walker who I've been surprised hasn't really been given much of a chance in the postseason. But um, I think that they're going to have to lean on him a little bit more in this series. I think that they kind of learned. I still think they might go to Troy Brown, um, but I think that 
going through now a full series of seeing what this looks like with him, I think that we we might see more Lonnie Walker earlier than than what we have seen in the past with them. Yeah. And, you know, I just think we, we saw the Warriors and, and part of, I think, what was uh, was so great about that series against the Kings was the pace that was was played there. And you'll see the Lakers, especially off of uh, off of forcing turnovers that they get out and run. And that's another I would say, like, as far as a team X factor, that would be something like if if the Warriors are just extra sloppy in this series, that could help the Lakers stay in it. Um, but, uh, if the Warriors are, you know, 15 turnovers or less in most of these games, I think, and at the pace that they, if they continue to keep up the pace that they played, uh, against Sacramento, I just have a really hard time envisioning a, a Lakers offense that's heavy on LeBron and AD isolations and, and pick and rolls with Reeves and, and, uh, Russell and, and Schroeder that, that that that's gonna that that they're just gonna be able to score enough, and that's largely what I think this comes down to for me is that both teams have some really good defensive talent. Like I think it's gonna be fascinating to watch Draymond and Anthony Davis, arguably the two best defensive postseason players in basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which one of those guys can have a larger impact? But I just feel like the Warriors offense is just at a higher level. Uh, and so they're just going to be able to score a little bit better than the Lakers, despite the fact that both teams are are really strong and really talented defensively. Yeah. Like I said, I think the Lakers at times are just going to be forced to lean on production from the wings and guards. And again, we, we keep bringing up the names, Russell Reeves, Schroeder, like it's just going to have to come from them at some point, which is why I think that, you know, having Peyton is just such a huge, a huge, you know, feather in the cap of the Warriors in this series, as far as somebody who can just make life difficult, difficult on them as well. Um, but we really haven't talked about Clay a lot either, um, who was kind of up and down in in the King series. Um, but if you get either a good Clay game or a Jordan Poole game. Really, um, it's just I think it's going to be really, really tough for the Lakers to win a game where between the two of them, you get, you know, five or six made threes, which I think is going to happen at least, you know, two or three times probably throughout this series. So, yeah, and I even think Clay could could factor into guarding LeBron at times, too. Like Clay is uh, is, you know. It's, it's quite strong. It's hard to really yeah. move that guy. I, think. I don't think he moves as well laterally as he used to, but I mean, yeah, the strength is still there. But that's not as honestly, that's not as big of an issue with LeBron anymore because he just mm-hmm. doesn't quite have that quick twitch, uh, you know, burst. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Clay is Clay is going to be fascinating. There's going to be some good Clay games. There's going to be some clad, bad Clay games. I, I again, I think it's funny with the whole Steve Kerr pl- telling Jordan Poole to play within himself, right? It's like, but <laughs> you're getting kind of some bad examples from from especially Clay Thompson on what is a good <laughs> shot or not. Yeah, I mean, definitely an interesting dynamic playing with Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson, and trying to understand that what is a good shot for them might not be a good shot for you. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, 
let's uh, let's hear it, Justin. Who do you uh, who do you have winning this uh, this matchup and, and in how many games? I think it's ultimately going to come down to the Warriors winning at home in Game Seven. Um, I just think that I I do think, like I said, I have enough faith in LeBron to make a couple of these games different, um, and I have the faith in the Lakers to make a game six in LA um, come back to golden state, but I just don't see a world where, um, and it, it really, I wanted to say warriors and six in a general sense. I just think that the Lakers can take that home game, but I, I, I ultimately do have faith that, that the warriors will be able to close this series. Again, I, I think that Steph is going to be from, the first to last game, the best player in the series. Um, I just think it's going to be difficult to find um, really an answer for him. I think that the Lakers are going to try a bunch of different things, but I just think he's going to be, I just think he's going to be the most effective player here. So I think it's going to be close. Um, Like I said, I think it's just going to be a lot of grinded out um, style basketball and just kind of having one or two or three guys in each game that, really make the difference on offense but yeah i just think that the warriors are a deeper team i think that they have more options that they can turn to um again we talk about you know coaching experience the difference between steve kerr and darvin ham is fairly large so i just trust that the warriors will be able to to make things work um better than what the lakers are going to be able to throw out there they're going to i just think that the Lakers are going to be searching for answers throughout this series to where the Warriors kind of already have them. Um, as far as, you know, the guys that they can play, the guys that they know they can lean on if a Jordan Poole isn't playing well. Um, if Russell, you know, isn't playing well, I guess you can go to Schroeder. But, you know, I think it's going to take time to figure out, okay, can we trust Rui in this series? Can we trust... Malik Beasley to knock down shots. Can we trust Troy Brown to do anything? Can we trust Lonnie Walker to do anything? Do we go to someone else? I just think that's going to be a figuring out process in the early game for the Lakers. So, yeah. And I think the Warriors are better suited to, you know, yeah. If Beasley comes on the court to target and attack to target him. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny to say that given that LeBron, that was his specialty, you know, back in, back in, in Cleveland and, and all that, even early on in his Lakers tenure, hunting mismatches and attacking, but I just don't think he's necessarily, uh, he can, he can do that possession after possession, like someone like Steph Curry could. Um, so I, uh, I don't even think it's necessary. I think I, I, uh, consider the warriors an even bigger favorite than you do, Justin. I've got them winning in six, but I would honestly probably pick warriors in five before I would pick warriors in seven, just given they they've got home court advantage in that game five. Yeah. Um, And I guess to that point, I would pick Warriors in six before I would pick Lakers in seven. Okay, gotcha. Um, but, you know, I, I think these are two really good defenses, right? And uh, it, so it's it's largely going to come down to shot making. And I trust the Warriors shot making way more than the Lakers shot making. Uh, LeBron yeah. has, has, has been terrible from three in the postseason. And for most of the regular season, he shot 32% this year. His his outside jumper is is going to be crucial not only because I think he he settles for that more just to conserve energy, but that you know he hasn't been making it that often. So if if he can have a forty percent series, that might change things from three. But uh, I 
I, I trust Steph Clay, Wiggins, you know, those guys, Jordan Poole, even those guys to knock down shots over I over trusting what the Lakers have. And D'Angelo Russell had a uh, had a great game, uh, game six against Memphis, hitting a, a bunch of shots. And that was partly why they were able to blow that one out. But I don't trust Russell to be consistent in the shot making department either. Yeah, it's going to take that from somebody to win some of these games. It's going to have to be one of the perimeter players that steps up and, you know, is able to be a legit guy who can take pressure off of those two. Um, I think we're going to see it from one of them at least once. Um, Ultimately, it's probably just not going to be enough. But I just think that, again, there's going to be enough from LeBron. I think he's going to be able to empty the tank in this series. Um, and I just trust that both of these defenses are just going to be so good to where so many of these games are going to be close. Um, and coming down the stretch, if you can just rely on LeBron to, you know, make a few closing plays or Anthony Davis to make a few closing plays, um, I really do think that this is going to be a really, really tight and a really, really fun series throughout. Yeah. I think the, the blueprint to me for the Lakers pulling Slow it out down would be, would be one like having outlier shot making from not only their stars but some of their role players but then also yeah. if there's if there's close games winning the clutch moments of the series yes i think they have to pull that out to to win this but i i honestly think it's the warriors series to lose and uh but yeah justin this was an absolute blast chatting uh chatting calves and then the uh one of these uh, second round Western conference series. It was lovely to have you back on Duncan dynasty. And uh, thanks again. Yeah. Nikola Jokic has 37 and 14 right now for the nuggets. So <laughs> I'm looking yeah, forward so to for watching those listening, this We're recording this on, uh, on Monday night. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to uh, watch both Monday night games after we're done here. And uh, yeah, this will be out on, uh, on Tuesday sometime before the game one of Lakers warriors. But uh yeah, Justin, uh, enjoy the uh, the rest of the basketball this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Garrett. Blast to be back on. Happy to do it anytime. Thanks for listening to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. Corbin Ford and Garrett Bouguet here with you. And uh, just wanted to, to quickly say before we wrap up, uh, please subscribe, rate, and review Duncan Dynasty. We're on, uh, we're on iTunes. We're on Spotify, wherever you get your, uh, your podcast. That is uh, much appreciated. You can find me on uh, Twitter at Garrett Bouguet. Corbin, why don't you tell the people what you got going on? Oh, man, you can find me on Twitter at Corbin MBA. Uh, definitely make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. I mean, following me is just an afterthought here. But if you want some more NBA content from yours truly, uh, check out Round Ball Ramble. Um, it is my podcast. You can also find uh, the description uh, on my Twitter handle. On on, once you click on my Twitter handle, uh, definitely check that out. And, uh, yeah, a bunch of other um, assorted pods. I love talking hoops just like my friend Garrett does. So you know where to find me there. That's the main part to catch my work. Yeah, can't recommend Round Ball Ramble enough. Corbin does goes, does great stuff there, and I've appeared on it numerous times and uh, <laughs> hopefully will be uh, continuing to appear on it in the future. Again, we appreciate you all for listening and, of course, enjoy the next week in the NBA calendar.